welcome to the Come Follow Me Weekly Wisdom Podcast. My goal is to deepen your faith in and love for Jesus Christ and his gospel. You can best support these podcasts by purchasing one of my books, The Divine Nature and His Voice, The Teachings of the Old and New Testament. These books can be purchased on Amazon or by visiting my website, www.unfoldingthescriptures.com. Thank you. First off, thank you for everyone who is listening and tuning in. I hope that in the future I will be able to produce more content and maintain pace with the Come Follow Me lessons. The thing I have planned next would be to hopefully get some sort of question and answer set up. I think that would be one of the more helpful things. And I would truly just open up to question and answer about anything and see if I can get stumped on something, that probably won't be too difficult. I know there's two questions off the top of my head that I probably won't be able to answer um, and dread getting those two questions for sure. But I am very grateful to have been able to do this. This has been rewarding for myself. I've learned a lot in the process of this. So we're going to go through First Nephi chapters 1 through 7. There's a lot of material to cover. Obviously, I just spent an hour going over 1 Nephi 1.1, so it's probably going to be difficult for me to cover seven chapters in a similar time frame. So I won't expound any further on 1 Nephi 1.1. If you want some commentary on that, go listen to the previous podcast. 1 Nephi 1.2, it's an interesting verse. It states that Nephi makes a record in the learning of the Jews and the language of the Egyptians, which is one of the weird evidences of the Book of Mormon. Someone may read that and be really, really critical of that. Why in the world would somebody be using Hebrew words in an Egyptian alphabet until we start finding some other historical documents where that was also done? And... Of course, if you believe that Joseph Smith just wrote this, that's quite the miraculous finding that some kid up in upstate New York was able to have some historical insights such as that. First Nephi chapter 1 verse 3, I know that the record which I make is true. Simple phrase, but a, a powerful testimony that comes from Nephi. And it's something that in the simplicity of the verse, I it's one that it's hard to really expound on it further. It's just a simple testimony from Nephi and something that I have felt as I've read these verses. So the story goes is Lehi, he's in Jerusalem. He hears prophets prophesying and states that there were many prophets that were prophesying. It's hard to know if Lehi was one of these prophets that was prophesying or just some random guy in Jerusalem that hears the prophets prophesying about repentance. Either way, what happens is, is Lehi goes forth, he prays and has a vision from God. Or more specifically, he prays initially and has this experience of a pillar of fire on a rock and God communicating to him at that time. And then he goes home and goes, says, casts himself upon his bed and then has a spiritual experience and a vision afterwards. In verse 5, it states that Lehi prays with all of his heart in behalf of his people, something that is very thematic through the Book of Mormon. You'll have many of these prophets praying on behalf of people. They pray on behalf of 
the future generations. There's a lot of prayers offered towards their future posterity. Lehi, Nephi, Enos, praying that in some future day that their posterity will come to a knowledge of the truth. So just as you can imagine Lehi praying constantly about his children, Laman and Lemuel, there's many prayers about the posterity of Laman and Lemuel, which is a very strong theme throughout the Book of Mormon, and very telling as well of, of Lehi's character. It's something that we often re try to remind ourselves, but we don't often put into practice. The, the statement that we have in the New Testament of praying for your enemies, praying in behalf of people, I find that personally most of my prayers and the content that is in them is very self-centered and it's always something to remember as far as your prayers go to make sure that you're having space for other people, being mindful of others, being mindful of those who you care for, your family members, those who are in need, as well as your enemies. So Lehi has a vision and in verse 11 we have a principle where it states that they gave unto him a book and bade him that he should read. And it came to pass that as he read, he was filled with the Spirit of the Lord. That is a tried and true principle of the gospel. Inasmuch as you read the words of God, inasmuch as you read Holy Scriptures, the books that have come from God, you will be filled with the Spirit of the Lord. I can't think of a more direct way to fill your life with God's Spirit just by simply reading the Word of God. It has a transformative effect. If you'll get those ideas consistently flowing through your mind, that's going to have a tremendous power in your life of giving you the Spirit of God. Verse 14 is something that was mentioned in the earlier podcast. A beautiful scripture stating, Thou art merciful, thou wilt not suffer those who come unto thee that they shall perish. God truly is merciful. Our Savior Jesus Christ truly is merciful. That because of Christ and his atonement and his death, that all of us, all who come unto Christ, will not perish. We believe that because of Jesus Christ and his redemption over death, that no one will perish. That all will be resurrected. All will receive blessings because of their faithfulness in coming here and experiencing mortal life, and ultimately those who will come fully unto God will receive all that he has offered them, and that we will not perish even from the second death, which is separation from God. And these are blessings that we did not deserve, but were given us because of God's grace, that while we were sinners, using the phrase in Romans, God extended that mercy towards us. 1 Nephi chapter 1, verse 20, I, Nephi, will show unto you that the tender mercies of the Lord are over all those whom he hath chosen, because of their faith, to make them mighty, even unto the power of deliverance. It's a, it's a great verse. The whole phrase, tender mercies, I believe was stolen by David A. Bednar. He gave a talk called The Tender Mercies of the Lord, which really had a strong cultural impact. It's, some, it's a phrase that I've heard quite a bit in the LDS community as a result of that talk from Elder Bednar. It's a great talk if you want to look that one up. The phrase that I like the most in that is this idea of being made mighty even unto the power of deliverance. 
that is one of the great miracles of the gospel, and that's something that would be great to hear from other people in terms of a lesson. Has anyone had an experience where God has made you mighty, where God has delivered you? The term deliverance has a very strong Old Testament feel. Go watch the Prince of Egypt and listen to the first song. The whole idea of deliver us, deliver us from our bondage. The Book of Mormon originating from an Old Testament an Old Testament timeline. The idea of deliverance, we often use more in the New Testament phrase, the idea of redemption, but deliverance and redemption have the same thematic core. And the idea there that God will make us mighty is really, really incredible because it's focused a lot on personal development. God himself is mighty and at times will display his might and we can witness that and praise God and testify and share that witness that we have seen of God's might. But on the other hand, God is also involved in trying to make us mighty. He's not trying to make us weak. He's not trying to make us these small, wussy, dependent creatures on him. We are his children, and he's trying to better us. He's trying to make us strong. And through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we become mightier. We become stronger and stronger, even unto the power of deliverance. Because of the power of God's gospel, the teachings of Jesus Christ, humanity itself has been forwarded in many ways. We've delivered ourselves from many, many sins of the past. You can even look at a very touchy subject such as slavery, and because of the great Christian core that existed in America and a lot of Western civilization, we've been able to eradicate slavery, something that still exists in today's day and age, but has been present in basically every culture that we have in recorded history. And it's these core beliefs that we have in Christianity that has allowed a, a, a tremendous amount of humankind to transcend the natural man, to be made mighty even unto deliverance from the natural man that exists within us. And these are things that we take for granted all the time in modern times and Western civilization, the slow and gradual process, process of deliverance that generally civilization has had to take. And it's a great analogy for the individual growth because as people are critical of their culture they should, would do well to remember the teachings of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 about the moat and the beam, that before you try to pluck out a moat out of the eye of your culture and of your fathers, perhaps you should take a second and consider the beam that is in your own eyes, that before you go around criticizing everyone in the world and criticizing every institution and everything that's wrong, with this organization and this organization, you should look at the organizations that you yourself have developed and the potential corruption that exists within them. Um, every institution, every person is imperfect. There's, there's degrees of corruption that exist in every, you, I, I'll say every church, every organization, every political organization, every government, every individual on the planet. So how do we reconcile the fact of that remaining error in that remaining sin that exists. One of the great things about the gospel of Jesus Christ is it is about this ongoing progression, this movement closer and closer towards God. And that same theme can be expressed in the idea of moving closer and closer to the promised land, just as 
Moses and the children of Israel go through this very long journey in the wilderness prior to reaching the promised land. We have we have in First Nephi a similar journey to a promised land, and it's very, very useful to look at Nephi's journey into the promised land. It's full of all sorts of twists and turns and times where you'd be like, my goodness, why doesn't God just make this really easy on Nephi? I mean, he sends them out into the wilderness, and as soon as they get comfortable there, he's going to ship them all the way back to Jerusalem, and then... Once they do that, they're going to go back in the wilderness. And once they're back in the wilderness, God says, hey, by the way, go back to Jerusalem. At, I'm surprised at any given point. Of course, if we had the records of Laman and Lemuel, we'd probably get lots of these points um, mentioned. Laman and Lemuel saying, why in the world didn't God just have us pick up the Ishmael wives we were there while we were there? It would have been a heck of a lot easier. Or maybe we could have got the plates before we left Jerusalem with Lehi and maybe, why didn't he just tell Lehi to do this? He's our father anyway. He probably would have had much better luck getting these plates. And all of this is really telling about the process of getting to the promised land. Similarly, if you were to use our a more modern type of concept, it's we're trying to establish Zion here on the earth. And we should think not as we gather to Zion that all of our troubles and trials are through, that nothing but comfort and pleasure is waiting in Zion for you. No, tis designed as a furnace, all substance, all textures to try. I think there's an old hymn, I don't think it's in the hymn book anymore, called Think Not When You Gather to Zion. And that's something that a lot of critics of religion are very harsh against. And I actually would say that a tremendous amount of people who end up leaving the church in general concept, it's because they have an expectation for a church organization that's quite unrealistic. They hold them to a standard that is very, very perfectionistic. And as soon as they don't meet that criteria, they start to aim at all of the faults in this religious leader, in this statement. And they're unable to, to look at the general picture that as by and large, each of these leaders is moving us closer and closer to the promised land, closer and closer to Zion. And we should be able to understand the process. And as you read through First Nephi and look at Nephi's journey, it's very, very helpful as you look at our journey as individuals, but also as a church group as well, a congregation, a group of believers as we are making that journey towards the promised land. First Nephi chapter 2, let's not forget the seriousness of these simple descriptions. Behold, they seek to take away thy life. First Nephi chapter 2 verse 1, the people who were in Jerusalem wanted to kill Lehi how many times in your life have people actually sought to take away your life? I mean, there there is a cultural context that you need to consider as you're reading this. And in verse four, there's there's it's always worth pointing out just because it gives a lot more significance to the actual storyline, the idea of leaving his house, the land of his inheritance, his gold, his silver, his precious things, and took nothing with him save it were his family. So, I mean, this sacrifice that Lehi is making and the sacrifice that his kids are making, I think a lot of it is that the kids, you know, they, they probably went along with because of just such a strong culture of honoring your father and your mother. And that it was almost like second nature because of the culture at the time. But nowadays, 
that that just seems like a narrative that would be very, very difficult, almost impossible for many of the people in this generation. Would you truly be willing to give up everything you have and depart into the wilderness? And the wilderness is always a a strong metaphor, something that every human being has some sort of phenomenological experience with going out into the wilderness is a great journey into the unknown. And it's worth noting that as we proceed toward the promised land, we have to leave our culture behind. We have to leave the things of the past and go into places where people haven't gone before. That's your Star Wars, Star Wars, sorry, don't, don't get mad at me for that mistake. Your Star Trek theme, go boldly where no man has ever gone before. So it states in verse 5 that they came down by the borders near the shore of the Red Sea. And it's hard to know exactly where Lehi was, but there's obviously a lot going on in Jerusalem, and he's spending time in Jerusalem. If you look on the maps and do a little bit of crude measurement, it looks like somewhere the diff- the space, depending on where on the border, because the shore of the Red Sea covers a lot of territory, It literally could be 200 to 500 miles away. So it looks like the way that the story reads is they leave Jerusalem and go towards, they get near towards the shore of the Red Sea, and then they pitch their tent. And then it's once they're there that they're commanded to go all the way back to Jerusalem. So it's like, hey, we just traveled 200 to 500 miles. Now you got to go 200, 500 miles back and then come 200, 500 miles back to the the shore of the Red Sea. I mean, could you imagine walking a thousand miles? So just as equal as 1 Nephi 3.7, you have 1 Nephi 2.5, which is essentially saying, I would walk 500 miles and I would walk 500 more. Sorry, I couldn't resist that. So after all these traveling, you have these very powerful testimonies, this feeling that you get from Lehi which the feeling that Lehi gives towards his sons, Laman and Lemuel, is emblematic of God's love for us. So you have verses 9 and 10, these very powerful expressions of father to son or father to child. And it states, Oh, that thou mightest be like unto this river, continually running into the fountain of all righteousness. Oh, that thou mightest be like unto this valley, firm and steadfast and immovable, and keeping the commandments of the Lord. It expresses a desire from God to make us better individuals. God wants us to become righteous. God wants us to be firm and steadfast in keeping his commandments. I always try to give time to note when you can get a insight into God's desires, God's own heart, and verses 9 and 10, as I said, reflect God's own desires. In 1 Nephi chapter 2, verse 12, this is one of the verses you probably want to like etch in stone because of its doctrinal or not necessarily even doctrinal significance, just its pure relevance. I touched on it in the podcast earlier, and it is verse 12, And thus Laman and Lemuel, being the eldest, did murmur against their father, and they did murmur because they knew not the dealings of that God who had created them. In the scriptures, whenever you see the word because, you should probably get a pencil or something dark and circle the term because, because because assumes causality, and it means because there's a causal relationship, and especially in the scriptures, with the authority that comes from the scriptures, we always want to pay attention to causal relationships. So there is this causal relationship and this connection that is drawn between murmuring 
and not knowing the dealings of God who has created them. So I won't go into that much deeper. If you want more insight into the significance of that verse, you can listen to the previous podcast. And uh, it's also worth noting in verse 13, neither did they believe. So when you're looking at errant behavior, you probably want to identify at which level that errant behavior is coming from. Sometimes it just comes due to ignorance. And I think a lot of times when we look at errant behavior due to ignorance, we have a lot more compassion. And then the second is neither did they believe. So you can see the result of the murmuring being twofold. The one, they just don't understand God. They don't have that knowledge and capability to see God's see as God's would see God's perspective. And the second is they just don't believe what God was saying. It's become really popular to emphasize First Nephi 2, verse 15, where God, it says, and my father dwelt in a tent to express the humility of Lehi, again, emphasizing the fact that they had left everything. And here is this individual dwelling in the tent. Preceding that, you have this description of a tremendous period of Lehi showing incredible power and then returning back to his place of humility. But your real money verse is 1 Nephi 2.16, and having great desires to know the mysteries of God, wherefore I did cry unto the Lord, and behold, he did visit me, and did soften my heart, that I did believe all the words which had been spoken by my father, wherefore I did not rebel against him like unto my brethren, um, like unto my brothers. Nephi, through his prayer, this desire to know the mysteries of God, this is very similar to the story of Joseph Smith. It's, it's one of the great anchors of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, that we believe that God truly does answer prayers, that his works and his hand are not just things that were manifesting in the past, but God is the same today as he was in the past, and God will answer your prayers. God has the ability to soften our heart, and that's one of the ways in which God does visit us. He'll soften our hearts. He will improve our capacity to believe. And you have to understand concerning belief that there is a process involved with that. And it's very difficult to believe. You can definitely understand coming from the perspective of Laman and Lemuel. It'd be very difficult to believe. I think it'd be even more difficult to believe in your own father as being a prophet because you're so close to him. I mean, it says even in the New Testament that a prophet isn't accepted in his own city. So I can imagine that in your own house <laughs> that, you know, it would be very difficult for a wife to believe that their husband is a prophet, knowing all the all the bad things and all of their weaknesses, knowing their mortality better than anyone else. In First Nephi 2.17, there's a good example of one of the gifts of the Spirit, one of the gifts of the Spirit. There's a gift to believe and a gift to have faith. But I believe in Doctrine and Covenants section 46, verse 14, it states that there is a gift to believe in the testimony of others. And you see in verse 17, that takes place, that Sam, make, that I spake unto Sam, making known unto him the things which the Lord had manifested unto me by his Holy Spirit. And it came to pass that he believed in my words. So you can see a good example of that gift of the Spirit. And uh, perhaps as you try and look at your own life and you're looking at the ways in which you've been blessed, perhaps that's something that can be descriptive of you. Um, where do you, where do you draw belief and faith from? Some people can draw belief and faith from their parents, some from the testimony of others, some from the testimony of the scriptures.
First Nephi chapter 2, verse 20, one of the strongest themes of the Book of Mormon. I've mentioned strong themes, but this one may actually take the cake in all of the Book of Mormon. First Nephi 2.20, And inasmuch as ye shall keep my commandments, ye shall prosper, and shall be led to a land of promise. Yea, even a land which I have prepared for you, yea, a land which is choice above all other lands. One of the... It, it's such a great verse because this is true for every individual. If you were to think about it in your life, that you have a choice land that has been prepared for you. God does have a destiny for you. He has an image in mind of something that he would like for you to accomplish. Not just in death, obviously, with going into heaven and, and the great glory that comes in the afterlife, but this is about mortality. This is about your life here and now. Like God has something for you. He, you have a purpose. And the, the truth is it's a, what I would phrase an archetypal quest for all individuals. I guess instead of using the term archetypal, you could just say it's a universal quest for all humanity that we are trying to find our place on this earth. We're trying to find our, find our place in, in within the church, our place with God even. And, and each of those relationships is, is contained in the image of a promised land. We're try, we're in a specific location right now, and that's not where we want to be. We want to be in this place of promise, this holy land, as it were. And how do we get there? In as much as you keep the commandments, you will prosper and you will be led. This is something that Nephi truly wants to emphasize a lot, and you're going to see this a lot emphasized in the whole imagery of the Liahona and this whole journey that Nephi has and how critical it is for them to keep the commandments. The, the whole Book of Mormon, this family, this Nephi character is so anchored on obedience, which is becoming a lost art today because today it's now all about finding how you can be an exception to the rule. And that's like the coolest thing you could ever get is, hey, look at me, I'm an exception to this commandment. Look at how I've been so victimized and how this particular precept and gospel principle doesn't apply to me. Isn't that awesome? Whereas Nephi, it's all like obedience. That's the principle. It's about not wanting to be the exception to the rule. It's truly just the plain and simple submission to God. And that's one of the great principles that you'll find in Islam. The, the term Islam, the main focus of Islam is just submitting to the Lord. It's a religion that does a really good job of emphasizing obedience. That's one of the great things that you'll find in that religion. And definitely the Old Testament, that's something as we progress to the New Testament, we've we've softened our value system a little bit on the the worth of just plain and simple obedience. And it's nice to have Nephi as a character. Personally, it's been hard for me to relate to him because of that. Um, I, I don't see myself as this most Nephi-like obedient character, but it definitely gives us that standard and an example for us to strive for. First Nephi chapter 3, verse 5, Thy brothers murmur, saying, It is a hard thing which I have required of them. But behold, I have not required it of them, but it is a commandment of the Lord. I, it's it's always sad that when I read these, I feel like I totally relate far more to Laman and Lemuel than I do to, Le to Nephi. And that's probably why this is such good scripture, because it really gives you, like I said, the standard for you to become a better person. 
Um, I definitely relate to that phrase of Laman and Lemuel saying, this is a hard thing that God has required. And as you look through the narrative, remember, as part, I, it's something that I emphasize a lot, the narrative structure, that we can't skip steps. That's something that I found quite a bit that's caused some problems in, I would phrase it more so Latter-day Saint culture, not Latter-day Saint doctrine, because the doctrine itself is the gospel, and the gospel has a fundamental narrative. And if it wasn't a hard thing, it wouldn't be that cool and that impressive for Nephi, Laman, and Lemuel, and Sam to do these things. If it was, this is a piece of cake, you probably wouldn't, that the story wouldn't be that compelling. You know, even Nephi is going to recognize this is a hard thing that has been required. Obviously, the main significance that changes this is, this is a hard thing that you have required this of me speaking specifically to Lehi and not acknowledging it as a commandment of the Lord. It definitely taps into a piece of psychology there, who is giving the commandment. And as much as it's, it is a commandment from man, it's going to be a hard thing. It may even be an impossible thing, and it's probably not even that relevant. But as soon as it is believed to be coming from God, if it truly is a commandment of the Lord, that will absolutely transform the whole experience. Now, Nephi's response in 1 Nephi 3.7 is the one that gets all the attention. I will go and do the things which the Lord hath commanded, for I know that the Lord giveth no commandments unto the children of men, save he shall prepare a way for them that they may accomplish the thing which he commandeth them. So, as I already said, I'm kind of jealous of Nephi, but in 1 Nephi 3.7, it is a tremendous verse, a verse that expresses an incredible faith. But it's worth noting as well here that there is a sense of naivety that exists in 1 Nephi 3.7. Because ultimately, I mean, I've seen a lot of people say 1 Nephi 3.7, I will go and do the things which the Lord has commanded. For I know that the Lord giveth no commandments unto the children of men, save he shall prepare a way. That's really easy to say before things get actually really difficult, before you go out into the wilderness, before you go your 200 to 500 miles, before you actually get to Laban's door and he tries to kill you, before you fail again and again and again and again. Of course, it's easy to say that, you know, we can keep the commandments. God doesn't give us commandments, save he shall prepare a way. It's so easy to say that until you failed. I mean, can you still say 1 Nephi 3.7 after you failed 10 times? I mean, as I said, you can really, you can really empathize with Laman and Lemuel. You know, perhaps they were convinced of 1 Nephi 3.7 for a moment somewhere along the journey. I mean, they got out there and went and they did make some pretty good attempts at getting the plates. And they may have had at some moment that belief that, you know, we can do this because God has commanded us. But it's like God commanded us. And now here we are at Laban's doorstep. And guess what? He didn't give us the plates. I thought that this was just going to go. I mean, God's blessed our journey, hasn't he? Shouldn't it just be easy? Shouldn't it be a smooth, uninterrupted path straight away to the promised land? Why is it that when we have the blessing of God and we have this direction from God, that we continue to run into problem after problem, that God continues to allow us to fail and to fail and makes this journey so hard. And we would say unnecessarily hard because he's God. Why doesn't he just teleport them or why doesn't he just teleport the plates there? It's just he can do anything. That's what the uh, silly critic would say 
reading the story, but the, it's so unappreciative of the actual process, which is why when you're reading this, you get a lot of insight into the journey. And it's something that will be helpful for you as you're trying to contextualize the journey of the Church of Jesus Christ and how it's trying to move and progress. And you as an individual, and it's, I don't want to lessen the faith that comes from First Nephi 3.7 because that's necessary. I mean, I, what do you want the verse to say? I won't go and do, or I'm not so sure that God's going to prepare a way. Like, it's the perfect thing that Nephi could have said. But I do want to emphasize that, that that level of naivety, because at that moment, he truly doesn't know. And that that testimony of his has not been tested. It has not been put through the fire. It's not until verse 15. That's the verse that I like. That's the one that I've got etched in big black uh, pencil markings. And it says, as the Lord liveth and as we live, we will not go down unto our father in the wilderness until we have accomplished the thing which the Lord hath commanded us. That is when Nephi was tested. This is where, and if you read in verse 13, Laban was angry and said that you're a robber in trying to justify the fact that we could kill Laman and Lemuel. And so their lives are completely on the line. And Laman and Lemuel have every reason just to say, look, we tried. You know, I've, you see this all the time. God gives us a commandment and you give an attempt and then you say, well, I, I tried after all, didn't I? So I guess God doesn't want me to fulfill this commandment. I guess I must be an exception to this commandment. Let's head all on back to the wilderness. God will prepare a way. This obviously is not the way we're supposed to get it. But Nephi's conviction is so is so apparent in verse 15. That's the one that always just completely floors me. Nephi, as the Lord liveth and as we live, we will not go down unto our father in the wilderness until we have accomplished the thing which the Lord hath commanded us. I hope at some point in my life I'll be able to say something as cool as that, that I may have a moment of just absolute conviction where I can throw down like that. I mean, that verse is extremely powerful. I did want to know in verse in verse 7 there, the idea of God preparing a way that is a witness of Jesus Christ as well, because what is the way that God has prepared for us to accomplish his commandments in general? The way is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ said that I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus Christ is he who has been prepared to allow us to get to where God would have us to be, to ultimately keep the commandments of the Lord, to actually return to him. So you can look at 1 Nephi 3.7 in the context of the Savior Jesus Christ as well. So we have the idea of Nephi killing Laban, which is quite a complex thing to understand. I, I, I have no idea how I would teach that as a parent to a little kid. You know, we have the concept of milk before meat, and this is definitely a meaty topic. First of all, it's worth noting that there is a culture here, and I look at this slaying of Laban as, again, a powerful witness of Joseph Smith as his, that he was a prophet. This whole story, with this cultural tension and the nuance of the culture, I, that's just so beyond Joseph Smith. And I've already mentioned that once on this podcast, but here's this kid from New York. And here he is with this incredibly deep insight into nuance and culture from Jerusalem. Think of yourself as a teenager. I mean, half the teenagers read this and just want to forget the whole story. But here's Joseph Smith as he's translating the plates. These things are just so beyond Joseph Smith. I've not met a person on the planet. I've not met a religious scriptorian on the planet that could have 
constructed a narrative like this, more or less a kid. And so it's just incredible to look at the concept of the slaying of Laban. There's some interesting context. I know, I think I read a paper once from BYU where they were talking about some of the mosaic laws on how how theft is addressed. Now, Laban himself having stolen everything, there's something about this specific encounter that Nephi has with Laban, that Laban being a thief, if you encounter a thief in the night, there's something about a justification of taking that person's life. Obviously, one of the principles is is that our lives are in the hand of the Lord. And the this, this specific phrase that you want to give attention to is this idea of that Laban would be delivered into Nephi's hands, that the term being delivered into someone's hands, if you look a lot in the, if you look through the Old Testament, that phrase is very specific about taking someone's life. And there's a lot of war analogies where a specific group of people would be delivered into their hands in in, in a type of warfare. And it's worth looking at Laban and those the culture because many of the things that Laban had done had justified his killing based off of their laws. Now, of course, the, the more interesting ideas well then who's nephi to take his life the the best example i've seen on that was that byu um, document that said that if you encounter a thief in the night that you're you have this justification of taking his life but the justifications of taking his life are in the book of mormon so if you read through first nephi 4 13 through 17 that you have these justifications that Nephi is looking at. And one of the primary ones is that it was a commandment of the Lord. I mean, if you're really trying to extract a principle of this, I mean, this would be because obviously I you've already heard me say a couple times that you get critics of religion. And so a lot of critics of religion are going to point things out there and say, so I guess if you just look at verse 13, it is better that one man should perish than that a nation should dwindle and perish in unbelief. That verse is scary because a lot of people could misinterpret that verse and use that to justify killing a person. I mean, there's no shortage of doing that in the history of man. And so that one can be dangerous when taken into the hands of someone who isn't righteous. So the way that I respond to the critics is that what we learn from First Nephi is I guess it's okay for you to take someone's life if an angel from God comes down from heaven and tells you that you need to take this person's life. And it can't just be that he comes to you, but he has to come to at least four people. So you're not just having some psychotic episode, but that three other people outside of yourself also have to see this angel and bear witness that the angel of God has come down and said that you're going to take this person's life. That would be the way that you could respond to a really rough critic of the the narrative. I mean, it's worth remembering that an angel of God did come down to Nephi and prepare him for this task. And, And perhaps another future day, we can talk about the concept of masculinity because of the readings that I've done on psychoanalysis. There is a lot to masculinity and there's something about the Book of Mormon in general. The Old Testament has this very strong masculine feel behind it. The New Testament takes on a much more feminine feel. And the Book of Mormon, I think, gives you a a better balance of that because a lot of the concepts of God have become overly merciful and they've ignored justice. And the Book of Mormon does a very good job of keeping a more balanced image of who God is. 
and you see this idea of justice working through in First Nephi chapter 4. And the idea is the Lord slayeth the wicked to bring forth his righteous purposes. And ultimately it is the Lord that does this. What an extreme test for Nephi. I couldn't imagine that. But if you, if you want to a little bit more on the subject, I, as I said, I won't go too deep into that because it is such a sensitive thing. And, and as I said, verse 13, when taken into the hands of a, an errant individual, that can be greatly misinterpreted. When you're talking about a topic such as life and death and taking another person's life, that whole topic probably deserves like a two-hour discussion. Probably even someone a bit smarter than me that has some information and, and some experience dealing with judicial matters. When you're looking at this from a standpoint of governance, it really does become a matter of whose lives deserve to be taken. So I skipped over that. I skipped over a few verses to go there. First um, Nephi chapter three verse thirty one and First Nephi chapter four verses one and two. Those are great verses. You have Laman and Lemuel's reaction to seeing an angel, and they still go back to the idea of how is it possible that the Lord will deliver Laban into our hands? Behold, he is a mighty man; he can command fifty, even slay fifty. Then why not us? And Nephi's response, let us go up again, let us be faithful in keeping the commandments of the Lord. For behold, he is mightier than all the earth, and why not mightier than Laban and his fifty or even his tens of thousands? Therefore, let us go up and be strong like unto Moses. You can see some admiration that Nephi has for the prophet Moses and understanding that he has of the scriptures, his ability to apply the scriptures and his faith and his ability to take this concept and make an individual let us go up. The Lord is able to deliver us. And again, Nephi just continually impresses with his faith, his ability to believe that God can work through him. He goes in verse six, I was led by the spirit, not knowing beforehand the things which I should do. This verse is also found in Acts chapter 20, verse 22. If you want that cross reference, it's basically the same thing. I believe that's speaking of Paul, the apostle. There's a similar occasion where he's just led by the spirit not knowing beforehand the things that I should do. The, the reason that's obviously such a popular verse is because it's very descriptive of a lot of our life. I'd say about 90% of my life, I have no idea what I'm doing, and I'm just going out there trusting and having this faith in God that ultimately God is going to fill in the blanks. I mean, when you are in the wilderness and when you are in a place of uncertainty and anxiety, it's something that we definitely rely on is this underlying belief that amidst the uncertainty that is surrounding us, that God is still out there and we can still be directed by him amidst all the uncertainty. First Nephi chapter 5 is interesting. The interaction that you have with Sariah and Lehi, definitely you can understand Sariah's perspective that she's probably crushed as she thinks, my kids have not come back. And I, I don't know how many days, but I, I mean, she's probably out there counting the days, giving some sort of an estimate and worried that they haven't come back. And she's worried that her kids have been killed. And she has this moment of doubt. And one of the things that's worth looking at is it has this term in verse six. And after this manner of language, did my father Lehi comfort my mother? And it states again in verse eight, after this manner of language, did she speak? And prior to both of those when it uses this term, this manner of language, prior to that, you have Lehi testifying. 
And prior to the other one, you have Sariah testifying. So it's interesting that you have this, this description, a, a particular manner of language. And testimony is a particular manner of language. And when you're looking at a marital relationship, that's something that is absolutely critical and why it's so awesome that we have come follow me and this, and this focus that we have on families where this is an opportunity for us to use a particular manner of language, husband and wife, wife to husband and parent to child where we are testifying one to another. And it's, it's, it's as we bear our witness and speak from our soul that we're able to actually comfort one another. Lehi does a good job of just settling the concerns by bearing his testimony. And so that, that's a powerful interaction that you see. I think I remember, if I am remembering correctly, when you get to another future scenario in the Book of Mormon, so spoiler alert, eventually Nephi's going to break a bow and things are going to get pretty bad for them and they're all going to think they're going to die. And it's even a moment of weakness for Lehi and Lehi starts to complain against the Lord. But of just of note, it never mentions that Sariah complains. She has this moment of doubt and in verse 8, she gives her testimony. So verse 8 is Sariah's testimony, and that's worth reading. Now I know of a surety that the Lord hath commanded my husband to flee into the wilderness. Yea, and I also know of a surety that the Lord hath protected my sons and delivered them out of the hands of Laban and given them power whereby they could accomplish the thing which the Lord hath commanded them. Very similar language to First Nephi 3, 7 uh, and that is the manner of language. That is the testimony that comes from Sariah. And this was obviously such a building experience for her that eventually she, it's, it appears there's no evidence to suggest that she wavers at any point after that. And it's, it's worth noting as well that people doubt. I mean, Sariah doubts. Lehi as a prophet is going to experience doubt. It doesn't look like Nephi doubts. Nephi is just a baller. He never, he, he's rock solid from start to finish. This is his record after all. So I don't know if there's like some other plates that he kind of left out all of the negative things about himself, but Nephi comes off like pretty much flawless in these scriptures. But that's something that, again, in perhaps a future podcast, we can expound a bit about faith and doubt and the relationship that that has. It's normal to experience doubts. The, the great wisdom that came from Elder Uchtdorf to doubt your doubts before you doubt your faith and to not really beat yourself up over the occurrence of doubt. Doubt is a natural thing. It's part of this existence. The main thing that you need to remember when it comes to, turn, when it comes to the idea of doubt comes from, I believe it's probably in Corinthians because everything awesome is in Corinthians, is the term that states that we walk by faith and not by sight. The whole concept of faith means that there is a shadow of doubt. We don't have a full and absolute knowledge and certainty of everything, which means that there is a place for doubt to exist. And that's just the way things are. And you don't need to beat yourself up over the occurrence of doubt. That doesn't make you a bad person. Everyone on the planet experiences doubt. That is the necessary precursor for faith to manifest. And so it's all about the narrative. It's all about having a beginning, middle, and end. And usually the beginning state is this period of time, a fall, where you're going to experience doubt. Now, what's going to happen after that? Can you still find faith amidst doubts? First Nephi 6 
it states that I desire the room on the plates that I may write the things of God. For the fullness of mine intent is that I may persuade men to come unto the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob and be saved. Wherefore, the things which are pleasing unto the world I do not write, but the things which are pleasing unto God and unto those who are not of the world. Wherefore, I shall give commandment unto my seed. They shall not occupy these plates with the things which are not of worth unto the children of men. It helps give some description into the content that is in the Book of Mormon. The content in the Book of Mormon is filled with the things that are of worth. That this book has been highly edited. It's been edited by the creators and it was ultimately edited by Mormon and Moroni as they're compiling this and they're heeding this verse here in verse 6. That's as much written to Mormon as it is to us to give us this understanding that this is a highly edited document, a highly edited book. The contents in here have been reviewed and the things that are in here are of great worth unto us. So we, it, it gives you, within that context, it allows you to read the verses with a lot more intent and say, there's a reason that this is here. There's a reason that these words, this verse is here, because if it wasn't, it probably would have just got cut out at some point in time. This book contains the things of God. It is a, it is a document that is focused on spirituality. And I know that there's, a, there's, I, it's wonderful to have the history. It's wonderful to have, you know, some of these more superficial things, but never forget that the ultimate focus of the Book of Mormon is that this is a spiritual document. It is designed to give a spiritual insight. And that is the context that you need to read it. If you're looking at it as just a purely academic document or some grand historical document, then you're missing the mark completely. This document is designed to bring you closer to God. And that's emphasized there in First Nephi chapter 6. So with that, I'm going to close this summary of First Nephi chapters 1 through 7. I know I didn't get fully through 7. The intent of the Book of Mormon, the intent of all of this is to persuade you to come to the God of Abraham, to come unto Christ. This is the great intent. And I hope that, that through some of the things that we were able to review today, that it deepens your faith in Christ and it deepens that desire for you yourself to come unto the God of Abraham. I've, I've been impressed. I've been away from the Book of Mormon for such a long time that I, even just within these first 12 pages of the Book of Mormon in my own personal study, I truly have felt and seen this this whole principle coming true in my life is just within 12 pages, I have felt greater outpouring of the Spirit and have felt closer to God and the Savior Jesus Christ as I've been, as I've returned to the Book of Mormon. And it is an incredible power that is found in this book, and it truly is the Word of God. And I share that with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Your support for this podcast is greatly appreciated. Thank you. You can support this podcast by purchasing one of my books, The Divine Nature or His Voice, The Teachings of the Old and New Testament. These books can be purchased on Amazon or by visiting my website, www.unfoldingthescriptures.com. Thank you and God bless.